0: I don't know. Hacking is cool. I think of, like, hackathons,
1: like, where people try to, like, work in teams to find solutions to problems. Yeah.
0: We're recording, guys. Oh.
2: Oh. (laughs) So, (laughs) just saying.
1: Our team sat down for over an hour trying to organize and define the scope of today's episode. We recorded the whole thing. Don't worry, we won't make you listen to our entire discussion, just the highlights. We started by trying to define biohacking. In the end, we turn to the one true source.
0: What does Wikipedia say about biohacking, Stefania?
3: Um, Well, basically, uh, it says that biohacking may refer to do-it-yourself biology, biotechnological social movement in which individuals and small organizations study biology using the same methods as traditional research institutions, otherwise known as GRINDER, related terms, nutrigenomics, quantified self, self self-experimentation, and medicine.
4: We settled on the most succinct and widely used definition of biohacking. We defined it as experiments often on the self that take place outside of traditional lab spaces.
1: The open access nature of biohacking is something that really distinguishes it from how science has traditionally been done. A lot of these biohackers, for example, the Open Insulin Project, which aims to mass produce recombinant insulin to treat diabetes, they plan on spreading their protocols and methods to anyone worldwide who also wants to follow the same method to treat I guess, themselves or um, someone they know. And I think one positive aspect that the biohacking community, I guess, has in their culture is this openness and this um, willingness to share with others, which I think is a good
4: thing. The goal of many biohackers, particularly those with some scientific training, involves altering genetic code in a specific way. CRISPR technology has allowed these individuals to make genetic edits outside of traditional lab environments in a way that wasn't possible before.
0: So maybe for people who don't know what CRISPR is, does somebody want to throw out a definition?
4: Sure. So CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short palindromic Repeats. Which to most people means basically nothing. Yeah, Yeah. CRISPR works. might as well say CRISPR. CRISPR works. But uh, it's basically bacterial immune system that allows bacteria to cut the DNA of viruses. And viruses are just, I'm simplifying here, but they're genetic information coded in proteins, right? So to deal with viruses, you have to come up with ways to destroy the genetic information. And this is one of the ways that bacteria have come up with to do so.
3: Which is more or less what we focused on this episode, mostly the genetic part of biohacking, in which case more of the ethics come up and some of our guests uh, touched on that. But yes, definitely as a scientific community, we should Talk about the ethics and also the feasibility of each of these forms of biohacking. So it's been,
0: I guess, almost two years now since his initial announcement, but um, Dr. He Jiankui Kui had announced that uh, he had successfully edited, CRISPR edited several embryos, three embryos, I guess. Well, two, two were two implanted. Embry- two were implanted to have mutations in the CCR5 gene, which is associated with resistance to HIV. And this is a huge issue in China. Um, I think 0.1% of the population has HIV um, or is living with HIV. And so this, is, this was clearly a huge issue. But what people are essentially saying is this was the wrong gene to target. So we don't know what sort of off targets these kids have. We don't know if they're actually HIV resistant, which is kind of sad because that was the whole idea of the experiment. Um, We don't know any of the health information actually of the babies, but we know that a set of twins were born and shortly after a third baby was born. And that's pretty much all of the information Mm -hmm. that we've gathered.
4: Well, another thing I think is important to keep in mind is that What you're doing with this particular edit is not just changing the direction of human evolution. You're also imposing an external selective factor for HIV. If CCR5 does confer resistance to HIV, you're increasing the population that has this disease and increasing the selective pressure on the virus to adapt to it. Even if this works, you're not making sure that these babies Mm -hmm. don't get HIV.
0: Yeah, but I don't want to be like, I feel like we're being totally negative towards biohacking and towards gene editing. It's obviously really cool. And there's a reason that we wanted to do an episode on it. One of the things
5: I picked up from Josiah's interview was the fact that if this technology is being developed by other countries like China, like Russia, it might be the case that we never have the time to actually answer these ethical questions. Mm -hmm. This technology might move faster than any of us can catch on. It's more than, I think, just ethics. It's also there's an element of practicality here somewhere. So, I mean, it's, there's also things I think we can't predict in terms of the potential benefits. But also, I don't think we're very good at predicting the potential negative effects either. Mm-hmm. It might even be premature to you know, start having these conversations without even seeing some of these effects actually play out. Because a lot of these conversations are, at the end of the day, theoretical. It's not like yeah. there are 100 million people who are CRISPR babies, right?
0: Two as you can probably tell we had a long long conversation both on and off the record about all things biohacking but to wrap it up we asked everyone if we would ever attempt to biohack ourselves i think
1: unless if i found myself in very dire straits i don't see myself ever self-experimenting at least on the genetic level I think there's just a level of safety there that, that would be hard for me to replicate in my kitchen or in my garage. And I guess that concern is just too great for me to even attempt to do that type of self-experimentation.
4: I'll just echo Bryn's sentiment in that when it's relating to medicine, especially in Canada, we're fortunate enough to have uh, socialized healthcare. So I would definitely go to the professionals. Certain things are better off in a controlled Laboratory setting and medicine is definitely one of those. But talking about that, I think it is important to realize that some people might not have access to this, and um, that we talked about open insulin earlier. And it's it's necessary because some people, due to their socioeconomic status, are prevented from accessing these life saving drugs. So there is a need for this, but in our situation, I don't think that's very relevant.
5: I think I would do biohacking on myself, not. And I obviously, in particular for anything that was health-related. You know, if I had diabetes, I'd be looking into it. At the same time, pardon me, supports the idea of biohacking and self-experimentation, if only because there is an argument to be made about bodily autonomy and the right to do things to my own body that I consent to. <laughs> and you know, as long as I'm not. advertising it to other people or you know telling other people or encouraging other people to do this especially if they don't have the expertise or knowledge to do it then I don't really see a problem you know it's my it's my body (laughs) and I I think I'm allowed to do what I want to do it especially for health reasons
4: biohacking or bioengineering whatever you call it it's in the mainstream consciousness more than ever before With recent advancement in the CRISPR field, such as prime editing, allowing for more precise edits with fewer off-target effects, it's expected to play an even bigger role in our lives in the future, and so it's important to talk about the ethics of it and to understand the utility of the technology outside of a research setting.
1: As you'll soon hear, our guests on today's episode had diverse perspectives on the biohacking movement and what the future of DIY biology might look like. This is Biron. This is Yiknash.
0: And this is Melissa.
1: Welcome to episode 73 of Raw Talk.
0: We started out by talking with one of the most notorious biohackers around, Dr. Josiah Zahner. You might know him as the guy that live-streamed his self-experimentation with CRISPR, aiming to increase his muscle growth. He also runs a company called The Odin, which provides resources, kits, and reagents to biohack in your garage, school, or college lab.
6: I guess I didn't have the traditional growing up scientist life or childhood or anything like that. I think the first scientist I met was probably when I was in college or something. Otherwise, I, ha- I had no idea what a scientist was or what a scientist did or.
0: During your undergraduate like that. degree.
6: Yeah, yeah, during my undergraduate degree. And so like, I don't really know what inspired me to be a scientist. I I think it might just be my fascination with like I'm a reductionist at heart. And so just like reducing things down, you know?
0: Like simplifying them.
6: Yeah, trying to understand them from first principle or something like that.
0: Mhm.
6: Yeah, it got me into science and I just kept pursuing it. Got my PhD at the University of Chicago. Then I moved on and spent two years at NASA, where uh, it was pretty cool and interesting, but it, you know, these academia, the government, it just, it, it didn't feed my itch. And I realized that, like, all the cool things that we really want weren't happening. Everything that we were told that should happen or we should be working towards wasn't. And that kind of disappointed me because everything was, like, 20 years away. It's like, yeah, we did this experiment with CRISPR, but people won't be able to, you know, experience it for 20 years or something. You're just like, wait, what? Like, how does that make any sense? Either it didn't have anything to do with the thing we'll see in 20 years, or there's something else holding it back from from being uh, used in the world. I wanted to start using stuff. And so I decided to branch out on my own and start a company. I run a company called The and we teach people how to do genetic engineering in their homes.
0: You've said before uh, in interviews that you don't like titles, but you call yourself a biohacker. Can you describe that for people? What does it mean?
6: Yeah, you know, it's like, I guess the the terminology people are starting to use nowadays is genetic biohacker, because like you said, there's a lot of different descriptions of what a biohacker is
0: mm-hmm. like people are you saying it to hack your diet hack your yeah. exercise etc right it's not necessarily and like related.
6: i don't you know it doesn't really bother me too much or whatever people can describe it whatever they want to me it's just somebody who's trying to do interesting and, and unique stuff generally that happens to be people outside of traditional environments you know like academia or, or big industry big pharma but it could, it could mean anybody, anybody who's trying to do a unique, clever thing. I think that that's a good definition.
0: At the beginning of this episode, we told you that biohacking can encompass an almost dizzying range of pursuits, and there are a number of reasons for why individuals engage in biohacking. While many are motivated by the potential to feel healthier, reach peak performance, or simply be part of a growing community, Josiah expressed another reason for why he's turned to biohacking, frustration. As you might have guessed from his abrupt departure from NASA, Josiah became quickly disenchanted with the slow and often elitist nature of academia.
6: So I think that, like, forever there's been all this knowledge that's been locked up in academia, especially science, right? You have to pay to get access to some of it through paywalls, but a lot of it is also just, like, it's entrenched. Like, you learn how to do this thing by being in the lab that teaches it, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, like documents or guides online that teach you how to do certain things, which is crazy, right? If you want to do certain experiments, hands-on experiments, let's say with animals or with, you know, cells and cell culture, mammalian or human cell culture, like there's not a lot of description on how to do these things. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of guides and information about the actual hands-on aspect of it. And that's crazy that it is all just stuck in this environment you know academia and big industry and i think that like giving that knowledge to people can only be beneficial because with it if this technology is sufficiently powerful like everybody says if it can do all the things that scientists believe it can do then these people who have access to it will also be able to do those things right what if the scientific population of the world like doubled or tripled or 10x Mm-hmm. that be a bad thing you know i i just can't see it that way i can't imagine even if people contribute barely anything like i can't imagine it's a bad thing that people have access to this knowledge
0: so what are the positive things that have come out of biohacking in general
6: yeah no the big thing for us is just education right you know sometimes people look at it like like what have people created or something? Has anybody created like a new drug Mm -hmm. or like engineered a new crop or something like that? And I think those are unfair goals or, or things like that. Right. I think those are unfair things, standards to set these people to when like just a few years ago, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Right. People could do absolutely nothing. Like, yeah, sure you might be able to find some materials here and there and, and put some stuff together, but there was no way to learn this stuff pretty much if you didn't if you didn't know what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, we have classes teaching people how to do human cell culture at home without CO2 incubators, without anything, and people are successful at it, right? There are so many people that we've worked with who in the US, don't don't even have like high school diplomas. Mm. And across the world, we've sent out kits to Nepal, Sudan, Ethiopia for free donating these supplies to people. I don't know what they're gonna do, what's gonna happen in the future in years' time. Maybe people don't create anything.
3: Mm-hmm. Maybe
6: they just get educated and learn. But like that would be the greatest thing ever if society all knew what DNA was knew what genetic engineering was knew how to do all these things. Like, I think that's a big win on its own, the biggest win, because it's just like people, you know, we get so many messages like, Oh my gosh, I didn't think I'd ever be able to like learn how to do this or experience this in my lifetime. And this is like so cool that I could learn how to do genetic engineering. And it's just like, that's awesome and amazing.
0: While much of Josiah's motivation lies in empowering and educating the public, we had to wonder, has he ever regretted any of his biohacking decisions? So you don't have any, you have no regrets about, um, you know, publicly injecting yourself with CRISPR and or your microbiome transplant. There's no way that you hadn't done it or made it so, your journey so public.
6: Well, it was really hard. Melissa, is that like, I start to get a lot of people paying attention to me. Sure it's even hard for me nowadays because you don't realize, I don't realize how many people are paying attention to the things I say and do. And then when I do stuff, it becomes a lot more controversial than I anticipated or gets a lot more attention or something that, I, than I anticipated because like I never viewed myself as somebody who like people would pay attention to or want to pay attention to at all. Cause it's just never my goal in things like this. And so these things that i do i don't regret doing them themselves but like the effect they can sometimes have is not the intended effect i would want and that can just be like anger or hatred or people doing stupid stuff whatever the negative consequences of these things it it affects me also you know because like i don't want my actions to have You know, negative outcomes. And I've learned, you know, sometimes you got to live with the fact that like you can't protect everybody and you can't be perfect and you can't always have the best answer. So I just try to be myself and try to do whatever I would do regardless if anybody was
0: watching. Even though Josiah expressed some regrets about the publicity surrounding his biohacking endeavors, he still believes they were net positive in principle. We asked him to talk about some of the highs and lows he experienced performing his own microbiome transplant, as chronicled in the New York Times op-doc, Gut Hack.
6: I never intended for that to be filmed or anything like that. Somebody asked me if what projects and what stuff i was working on and i mentioned it and then somehow people were just like oh you know we should do some you know a uh write an article story on it and this was before anybody written any articles really on me or done anything and i was just like okay whatever for that all the experiments most all the stuff i've worked on all the little art cool things i did like they're pretty much free from judgment from the outside because there was nobody watching me really. And the effort that went into this experiment and just like how much it took for me, you know, taking the antibiotics, that really sucks. And it does do a number on your body, no matter who you are, or what you do, um, the whole experiment in general, and then being scrutinized with the camera and journalists and all this stuff. It was like such an emotional and physical investment is like one of those instances where you, if you play sports or something where you're just so beat up and you just last gasp of effort. You try to do something and it works and you're just like, holy, f- oh, my God, it works all that effort and all that that shit I went through and it actually worked like I did not yeah. expect that
0: at all. What is sort of like the danger with maintaining the status quo with these technologies? So like only using them in regulated spaces like academia, like is there a specific danger that we're kind of hiding them from the rest of the world?
6: Yeah, I think the first thing is just that like the people who control them will be the people in power and get to decide everything, right? Mm -hmm. God forbid that somebody creates a drug or a medicine that can only treat a specific group of people or can only help a specific group of people and they get to decide when it's released or how much they charge for it and stuff like that. Like that that starts to get really sickening. And there are stuff like that, you know, like recently this, this treatment, uh, gene therapy that cost a million dollars, uh, Novartis, I think they said that like, there are people who can't afford this treatment. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a lottery every year for a hundred people who get to receive this gene therapy treatment and who can't afford it. And you're like, that sounds great that you're giving it to a hundred people, but like what about the hundreds or thousands more who don't get it? That's literally Mm -hmm. the craziness of our medical system that like people are going to suffer and die because they just can't afford this treatment. And there's nothing we can do about it. Like Mm -hmm. nothing. Instead we hold a lottery, a lottery. (laughs) Like, your life comes down to a lottery. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. That is crazy.
0: And that brings me to my next question. When we make these technologies commercially available, you know, I think people think designer babies, Gattaca, the eugenics movement reborn, or or at the very least that people will be misinformed or misled by services pretending to give something that they can't actually deliver. Um, But what what would your response be to that? Specifically, I want to talk about the arrest of He Jiankwai and and your recent Stat News opinion piece.
6: You know, this stuff is always very inflammatory. People love to, like, associate genetic modification with Nazi eugenics. Not eugenics in general because, you know, those can be two different things. But, like, Nazi-style eugenics forcing people to... uh, have certain character traits and enforcing it on like a state or governmental level, um, which I think is very different from like people wanting to have certain traits that I think is up to each person. And it's, it's up to their own self-expression. It's, it's body autonomy mm-hmm. to me. Um, I mean, what about parents who get IVF and, you know, have a pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to like choose whether their child has, has a disease or not? You know, like, where do we draw the line on this to some people? It's after genetic diagnosis and before gene editing. But if you couldn't tell the difference, if I could gene edit you and you couldn't tell the difference between whether it occurred naturally or genetically, you know, through genetic engineering, like what then? Like, Mm -hmm. is that, what's the difference really besides some ethical argument?
0: Sure. Well, I think just to comment on the uh, the Chinese babies that were CRISPR edited, I I think some people actually think, you know, gene editing could in theory be wonderful for mitochondrial diseases and, you know, diseases like cystic fibrosis where we can actually cure these people, but it and it might have been better if he had tried for one of those like single gene diseases or mitochondrial diseases, but the argument is we don't actually know if, you know, these babies were are actually protected against HIV. They were certain they weren't really at risk for HIV to begin with. So it's not like you're protecting them. You're not uh, intervening in sort of an unmet medical need. We should be removing the red tape, but this was the wrong step forward. So what would your response be to that?
6: Maybe, but like tetanus isn't an unmet medical need, right? We get tetanus vaccines. Tetanus is not a communicable disease. It's caused by a bacteria that can be treated with antibiotics. Before the tetanus vaccine came out in the U.S., there was around 580 people a year who got tetanus. 580 people a year who got tetanus, and it can be treated with an antibiotic. I'm I'm not saying government forced to get a tetanus vaccine, but you know, we we pretty much are. You know, there's something like yeah. Yeah, there's like something like 90% coverage in in the U.S. There's no herd immunity or anything like that with tetanus. Our chances of getting tetanus nowadays, it's a soil bacteria, are like practically insignificant. Can be treated with antibiotics. So it's like, according to the CDC, there's about a one in a hundred thousand chance you'll receive some type of neuropathy from the tetanus vaccine. Is that a risk that we're willing to take with our children, with ourselves, with anybody? We say yes. Right. To me, it's like, what's the difference between the HIV thing? If we consider it a vaccine, right. About 0.1% of the Chinese population has HIV. That's, that's pretty significant. That's, that's around 1.5 million people, right? 1.5 million. So, you know, like, who know you sure like HIV is not a scary thing and we should not, you know, stigmatize it at all. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of ways to prevent HIV without gene editing or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, just as there's plenty of ways to prevent tetanus, but like, if you look at it like that, I, I don't get the difference to me. It comes down mostly to an ethical argument, the whole gene edited babies thing, not really a, you know, like risking lives or anything risking children or making decisions for children it's more of like an ethical argument and that's what where it like bugs me
0: yeah I think well I think people their thought is and this is was also sort of my thought process it's a permanent change and it affects not only these kids but in theory their kids and future generations and you've made that choice and we don't necessarily know the context in which informed consent was given or like how much knowledge the parents would have had on, on HIV. And like the specific gene that was mutated and what the specific mutation was. So to make a choice that will affect that many, like that many generations to follow is considered irresponsible.
6: You know, like there's so many of these arguments, and, but they're all hypothetical. And yeah, we need to be cautious and whatever level of caution you think is appropriate, I get that. That's, that's an argument people could have. But everything is like all these hypothetical things. What if? What if? What if? And it's like, number one, we don't know really anything. We're approaching it from the standpoint that like all the effects from this will just be strictly negative. And... You know I, I don't know you know don't don't put me in and say like i'm going to argue that they're all going to be positive or you know that things positive will come up but what if we approached it from the point of view of that like it is positive that like one of these babies was treated has no side effects and they're resistant to hiv then what again then it just become comes down to an ethical argument right or you know trying to figure out if consent was given properly or, or something like that and that's where it bugs me because like the only thing i think between viewing this in a positive or negative light is just if you think the results will be positive or negative if you think the results would be negative then you're probably going to hate
4: this guy if you think the results would be positive then you're probably not going to hate this guy as you can imagine, Josiah has gotten quite a bit of pushback for his opinion piece in Stat News, defending Chinese scientist He Zhang Kui, particularly from the academic community. If you stick around, you'll hear more from our interview with a bioethicist on this topic later. But there are also people who sort of see his point. We spoke with self-proclaimed genomic futurist Andrew Hessel, founder of Humane Genomics, a startup that does virus engineering and co-lead of genome Project Wright successor to the Human Genome Project that aims to actually write large genomes like the human genome from scratch. As someone who exists on the forefront of genomics and thinks about its future, we had him weigh in on the ethics behind gene editing in embryos.
7: So what we saw with the gene edited babies was, was complicated because people were a little shocked. This was, they weren't prepared for it. There was, it was kind of, it was just kind of you know, it, it, it appeared without a lot of warning and, and frankly, it was a very poorly devised project. But I, I want to be clear, if, if the scientists had had used CRISPR not to do an enhancement to make HIV resistant babies, but if instead he had worked with infertile couples to bring a baby into the world um, that wouldn't otherwise have been born, it would have been the IVF, you know, uh, uh, the modern version of of IVF. That was was such an obvious mistake in the choice of the project that I can only think he was just poorly advised because I would have told him that in two minutes. Hey, if you're going to go and try and push the envelope go and, and do something where there is a moral force behind it. You're bringing a person into the world that w- didn't have a chance to be born. You're know, you helping parents who, you know, the most powerful thing you can do in life is is have children and you're helping them. And so even if corners were cut, he would ultimately be forgiven because that was what history taught us around idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that was exactly what we said as well. It, like, it was a step forward, but it was perhaps the wrong step forward, in a sense. It because you as like as you've said before, even IVF was controversial back in like the late seventies, correct? So that's changed the lives of so many people.
7: I have two kids that that are you know born from IVF. So like uh, I I have great respect for the technology, but the you know that so that was a waste. I also agree with Josea's essay that it's a waste to put the scientist in jail even as flawed as his work was he did humanity a service by taking what had been a theoretical discussion and making it very pragmatic and now people are thinking about well how do you do this in a safe and responsible and transparent way with proper regulatory oversight and and i think that's done humanity a service. We 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 won't figure all this out. There will always be edge cases. There will be there will be other problems. But right now CRISPR is an amazingly powerful tool for helping people and and i believe that over the next decade as we start to move into whole genome engineering we're we're only going to be able to do this type of Modification or design of completely new things at a faster and faster pace, more accurately, more robust. So, again, that it will offend some people just because they think we're playing God. But in my view, it is just another technology that humanity has to, you know, to master, and it's the only technology that that is provably sustainable and compatible with life. So so I think it's, I, I really believe that biotechnologies in general help us find a or create a new balance with nature that, you know, that really makes uh, starts to repair some of the damage that we've done with early with earlier technologies.
0: Do you think there would have been so much pushback if he had released the findings in a scientific paper as opposed to a YouTube video?
7: Hard to say. Like, like everyone's so reactionary today. Someone says something and creates a tweet. Or, like, we all have our little pulpits to stand on today. And, and there's so much noise in any type of communication. At the end of the day, you just have to kind of choose things that you think are important and valuable turn the volume down on people that are are negative and and see, you know, and kind of work with the positive. And I'm, I'm not too worried about like accidents can happen. Uh, I get it, you know, like but I, I like to say, look, the in terms of existential risk, we still got tens of thousands of nuclear weapons. I, I don't really worry about life all that much. Uh, you know, I think that's the threat I think, in terms of causing harm to others, you can do it with computers—you know—much easier than you can do it with biology today. So I think we've got a window here, you know, to kind of get, you know, get up to speed. And I think there will be some sort of sensitizing event at some point where someone will use these technologies in a way, either nefariously or by accident, to do something that sensitizes. The world that we have to start thinking about things and it's not test. It's it's not gene editing. That's not going to change the world I think I think it's going to be something it's going to be some other biological Perhaps with a virus. I I don't know but but I I want us to start thinking and preparing for something like that uh, Because it's pretty predictable. It's going to happen when we when we started networking computers the scientists didn't even really think about, oh, we need kind of an immune system for our computer networks. But then there was a sensitizing incident with uh, the Morris worm. And if you don't know what that is, go and Google it and read about it. But that was kind of an error that set off a chain of events that ultimately crippled the nascent internet. And it was an honest mistake. And, And that kind of seeded Uh, more and more awareness that, yeah, we kind of have to have, you know, if you have a you you need a digital immune system and then antivirus software, blah, 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 you know, all started, you know, rising. So I think I think there's an opportunity to completely rethink biological security and create a whole new ecosystem and industry that is a lot better. And I think it turns into what we would recognize today as just better public health and public and, and healthcare and, and environmental stewardship <laughs> like, that's what it would look like if you built that type of system I think in general it's not so much an ethical issue I think it's how do we get everyone in the world more comfortable with these technologies just as they've become more comfortable with computer technologies and cell technologies and AI and robots and whatever else I think I think we just have to recognize biology is a technology and you know, it should be you know, used appropriately.
3: We talked to Josiah Zainer and he was, he's also one of those people that are talking about taking all of these technologies and bringing them to, to consumers, to bringing them to outside of the lab, outside of institutions and making it accessible. Of course, expressing some frustration that the rate of that is happening really slowly. Where do you think we are in terms of that? Because I've, I've heard you speak previously on how the, the rate of this, the, that this technology is advancing is really fast. Do you think that that is something that is possible or, or it's sort of dreaming that we can actually, anybody can do it? Is there a middle ground or can we actually get to that?
7: Oh well, let me let me just say I'm completely aligned with Josea in that the bio I don't like the term biohacker. Every scientist working in life science is a biohacker. They are taking something that exists already and they're dissecting it, whether it's physically or molecularly or computationally. That they're they're taking it apart and trying to figure out how it works and then and then manipulating the systems. No one's got the blueprints. In a sense, every scientist working in life science can be called a biohacker. I don't like that term because it comes with some edgy negative connotations. I like bioengineering.
4: Specifically, what Andrew likes is synthetic biology. A relatively new area of science that uses the principles of engineering to design new or redesign existing biological systems. Most of you probably know about the successes of the Human Genome Project, a multi-billion dollar initiative to sequence the first human genome. The Human Genome Project was completed nearly 20 years ago and now we've dramatically improved technologies to read DNA faster at a much lower cost, from several billion dollars to now just a couple hundred dollars per genome. More amazingly, We can not only read our DNA, we can edit it using tools like CRISPR. And now we can actually write the code of life too. Using synthetic biology, Andrew explains how we can write code using all the A's, T's, C's, and G's, compile it, turn the digital DNA into physical DNA, and load that code into cells or cell-free systems to see if it's running properly. We can then go through iterations of debugging until we reach our biological design goals.
7: I I want to be able to robustly design and build a biological system. And whether it's a single protein or a nucleic acid string or a virus or a cell or an organism or a tissue, it does not matter. I'm, I'm kind of application agnostic, but I'd like to be able to go and bioengineer. And here's what I know from working in other areas of engineering. it it requires tools and that means for me it all starts with a software tools to make the design and now and you can go a little upstream from that where you can say well you have to have a design intention i want to build a bridge i want to make a cell do this whatever but you but then you need a tool set a building is easy compared to a cell (laughs) so i want cad software for cells I want, I want it to be a like Google Earth, but for a cell, I want it to be that powerful. I want to be able to design code for that cell simulator and have a pretty good idea of how it's going to run in that model cell before I ever go and build it. But to get there, we're going to have to do a few iterations between genotype and phenotype at the cellular level to really train that system, because biophysics compared to the physics you would do for a building or a car like biophysics is magic (laughs) like how an how a single protein folds or an enzyme works can be mind-boggling so i i know we have to go and do a little bit of you know more work on the model but but that process of sitting down at software designing compiling your code, DNA synthesis, getting it into a cell or self free system and doing the test and measurement. I want to see that entire process as be completely digital and no lab tools required for any. For, so I want my daughter, who is like five, to be able to go up. And I want to be able to teach her on software very easily to be able to make a bacterium glow. But I don't think she needs to actually handle that bacterium to do it. <laughs> so all of the back end you know dna synthesis and boot up and testing i want to see on an automated platform josea is much more hands on and wants to teach people the experience of doing lab work and get them you know feeling it and tasting it and and really building a community around it and and that's hard because you need a place to do it you need the reagents and supplies which is his business, he's doing pretty well with that, but you also have to train and you have to engage. He's just got a very different way of dealing with with his community and supporting his community. And he's done a great job, but I want to see, I want to see that community grow even faster and in a more synchronized way. And I think that's done through a digital platform. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I absolutely think is going to happen is we're going to have more biological engineers, whether they are 10-year-olds, they're learning how to start coding you know, bacterial metabolism to, to a, just the diversity of, of, of various professionals coming into the world, very much like software engineers. I think we're going to have you know biological engineers like that, and more of those biological engineers then we have PhD scientists in you know in the next five to ten years. I think this community is just going to explode. And not everyone is going to go and try and cure cancer or completely reprogram, you know, an E. coli. But to me, the outputs of a lot of bioengineers being empowered with a digital system, ultimately you end up getting something like a biological app store. <laughs> If you go into the app store, there are, there are so many apps that, you know, you don't even know where to start, but you know, they, it's kind of a, it's kind of a primordial soup of software and, and the best stuff kind of, you know, people find out about it and they start to use it. I think something like that is going to happen in, in biological engineering. And it will be bottom up with people that may not have a lot of training. It's just someone comes along and says, Oh. And they can look through past projects at iGEM or they can take a course with Josea, or they can just have an idea that they want to try. And if they can write a little bit of biological code with the right software tool, and it's going to get easier and easier to do this type of work with better software. And if, if compiling that genetic code is inexpensive, again, I, I, I tell people today, look, if you had to pay 10 cents a base pair like you do at many DNA synthesis places like 10 cents a bit if you pay 10 cents a character every time you type no one would tweet because a tweet sure, would be yeah. 14 bucks totally. right so yeah. that's kind of the limiting step in playing with synthetic biology it's it's not the software tool it's access to synthesis at you know at at a playful price <laughs> so mm-hmm. because you know, so you write a gene, it's a thousand base pairs of code, you know, it's still going to cost you a hundred bucks to boot up that gene. Right. So that's okay. There's ways to do it cheaper if you have, but, but still that's just, that's a lot. And then if you actually, that doesn't get you the results of running that code in a cell yet. So then you have more overheads, but when all of that is integrated and it might cost a dollar, then, then suddenly people get to play and particularly if that if that system doesn't involve you doing those manipulations in your garage or your bedroom or your kitchen at home now it's being done in a robotic laboratory that is essentially properly equipped for dealing with you know living organisms potentially infectious of living organisms now you can really start to get the creative juices going so i think we are entering an age of explosive bioengineering and, and exploration of the possibilities of cellular systems.
4: Andrew's inherently optimistic about the future of genetic engineering and synthetic biology. But as these tools become cheaper and more accessible, does that mean we have to think more carefully about the ethics surrounding their use?
7: Well, I, I should say a couple of things. One, I'm not an ethicist, and I have no ethical training. And if anything, I probably, is. So, so I, and no, yeah, well, I just want to put say that at the beginning, because they're, in general, I believe that ethics are dynamic. And it's not a, like, I, I think, I think your ethical framework largely is part and parcel of the environment that you're in. And, and you might, you know, for example, you might be completely against GMOs. But if you were starving, you you would change your opinion. You would soften a little bit. So, you know, you might be uh, really against animal research, but then you might need a, a drug to treat your cancer that's been tested on animals. Like, I think it's really hard to get people to agree on an ethical position because they're so personal. You might find clusters uh, around a meme, but, but I think it's, I think they're really something very individual. And most people think that their ethical constructs are ethical.
1: Advancements in genomic technologies and their applications in medicine and biohacking are inherently ethically charged. We spoke to Dr. Michael Sego, an associate professor in the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. He specializes in clinical and research-related bioethics with an interest in genetics. To learn more about what his role entails, we asked him to describe what his day-to-day work looks like.
2: Each day is different, which is one of the reasons why I really like this job, so uh, I do clinical work. So I work in a downtown academic teaching hospital, and so whenever there's an ethical issue that may come up on a unit, um, lots of end of life issues, uh, some beginning of life issues, which um, I was actually just dealing with now, transitions of care, elder abuse. So those would all be sort of some themes that sort of would sort of percolate up and then trigger an ethics consult, and then I would get a page and get involved. Um, That's kind of the clinical side, so that's maybe the sexier side of what I do. The the other things that I do would be policy development. So often when I'm working on a clinical case, I may look at the hospital policy and, and sort of see what the policy has to say.
1: Michael also deals with issues related to research ethics.
2: So... I think at its core, research ethics is about ensuring that the research protocols um, that, are, that are done keep people as safe as possible. So uh, really what we look at is we want to make sure we're maximizing the benefits, minimizing the risk, uh, and of course making sure that patients are able to provide uh, informed consent. Um, prior to initiation of the study in most cases. So there are examples of uh, research studies where there would be a waiver of consent, but again, as an REB, there needs to be special justification for why that would be necessary.
1: Although Michael isn't an expert on biohacking or DIY science, we felt that he would be able to offer valuable insight into the ethics of such practices.
2: So... So I'm not an expert in biohacking, so I'll, I will I will put that on the table right away. Uh, although I'm familiar with the term, and I'm sort of familiar a little bit with the with with the landscape. So I guess what would concern me the most, um, and maybe this is just because I've I, I, I'm sort of heavily involved in regulated science, like being a part of an REB. But I guess what worries me is that people might be doing things without really knowing what the risks are, right? And they're not doing it in a regulated environment. They're basically conducting science on themselves in their basement, and there isn't sort of that, there isn't any oversight. And one could argue from a libertarian perspective that if they wanted to do that to, the, to themselves, you know, that's fine, but I am so used to a regulated environment where we, again, we try and mitigate risk the best we can, Uh, we do things in a very stepwise fashion where, you know, if we're doing a, so if we're doing a clinical trial, um, there's always going to be a phase one where we're going to look for what is the kind of the safe dose to give. And that's a very small number of patients. And then there's the phase two and then there. So things happen in a very slow, but regulated way. And biohacking seems like it's exactly the opposite.
1: Right. And that's your main concern with it is just people tinkering without knowing what they're doing with consequences that might be serious in some cases.
2: And and are there circumstances where they might be doing harm to other people as well? Right. So again, it's not just about themselves. So I'm thinking about if if they're playing around with viruses or are there implications to the health of other people? Right. And then so my concern would get elevated if, um, you know, I think people can do what they want on themselves when it starts to affect other people, I think, is when um, I would have an even elevated level of, concern
1: can you ever imagine any scenario where you would consider the use of biohacking or self-experimentation to be ethical
2: i mean i think it would again it would depend on whether anybody else could be harmed i think that would be an important question that i would want to know and what was the risk profile of whatever the person was doing so if it was something relatively innocuous then i think it really does it, it does sort of hinge on what the risk to the individual are and how well informed is that individual about what they're doing so it's not that it happens to take place in the person's home and not in a hospital environment. That just makes me uncomfortable because it's very different. But I guess I could imagine a scenario if something was you know, perfectly safe and um, the fact that somebody's doing it to themselves and they're not harming anybody else, I think that would be their right to do.
1: Since all of our guests weighed in on the CRISPR babies incident, we thought you'd like to hear a bioethicist's take on it. We asked Michael if it would ever be ethically permissible to genetically manipulate a human embryo or fetus and what the implications of this gene editing incident would mean for the future of human gene editing.
2: So one scenario I could think of is imagine that you had a baby, or you had a fetus with a genetic condition that would be lethal. So you'd know the fetus would die in utero, and this was sort of a one, this was a last ditch experiment that you could think of, or uh, I wouldn't even say it would be an experiment, but it would be, the intent would be clinical to try and save the, the life of the baby. Then I think, again, I'm, this is all kind of made up, but that would be sort of a set of scenarios where I could imagine one making an ethical argument. Um, In this case, they were changing one of the receptors to HIV to confer resistance to HIV infection. So these children would have been born perfectly healthy without CRISPR. It was basically just a proof of concept. And so the scientists took perfectly healthy embryos and altered one of the receptors for HIV. And again, you know, we don't know what the uh, off-target effects could be. Uh, we don't know what the long-term effects would be on the health of these children. So I, I think it really was uh, a, you know, reckless use of science and in, in many ways could take a good technology. And like you talked about, the event that happened in gene therapy, this could be the same thing with CRISPR, where everyone all of a sudden looks at this technology, remembers what happens in China and says, you know, we shouldn't be doing it, we shouldn't be touching it. Um, and I think that would be too bad. I think there is a lot of promise with CRISPR. It just needs to be done in the right way.
4: Biohacking takes the science outside of its normal academic and industrial confines and places it into the hands of innovators, entrepreneurs, and pretty much anyone else who has an interest in it. While this sort of DIY science has exciting implications for how society may one day deal with inaccessible drug costs, scientific literacy, and the food industry, we must temper our optimism by acknowledging and grappling with some of the ethical challenges that biohacking poses. We tried to keep an open mind while putting together this episode and not be swayed by our preconceptions. We gained some new perspective on biohacking from our guests, and we hope you did as well. If you're interested in learning more, we've linked some additional resources recommended by our guests in the episode show notes. You can also let us know what you thought by commenting on our latest Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram posts at Raw Talk Podcast.
1: This episode was hosted by myself, Biran Devey yagnesh ladumar and melissa galati nathan chan stefania asimopoulos and tsukiko miata helped conduct the interviews develop content and share their opinions during the roundtable session melissa galati was our executive editor photography was done by nathan chan and kat ann was our audio engineer a very special thank you to our guests dr josiah zahner andrew hessel and dr michael sego for speaking to us and sharing their insights And of course, thank you for listening. Be sure to check out our next episode in two weeks, where we discuss pandemics.
0: Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.